Welcome, everyone. You are listening to A Brief History of Power. I'm Willie Grills here with Dr. Adam Kuntz, continuing our discussion of border wars. Adam, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Doing well. How's the weather out in Colorado? This is always boring because it is sunny and dry. So there you go. There will be snow probably later this month, but right now, sunny and dry and very pleasant. It's uh, very hot, very humid here, as it always is. <laughs> it's a l- little bit unsettling to see the leaves beginning to fall with this kind of weather. <laughs> what is it? What is it like sweating while also having the seasons change? What is that? Yeah, like? it's it's uh, you know, it's spiritually afflicting, is what it is. <laughs> um, and you know, the thing is, like, you get all the reptilians out at your airport, but they would right. do much much better here. Yeah, you know, they would, but they would prefer to be sculpted in stone and to watch over you as you get your baggage from baggage claim at DIA. Curiously, most of my property is covered in quartz. So, you know, we could do that. Yeah, that's really weird. (laughs) Yeah, it's uh, telling you, strange (laughs) strange things afoot in in Arkansas. Nobody talks about it. (laughs) They don't want you to know about Arkansas. Yeah, yeah, they definitely don't. Not even the Clintons did because then they'd be in jail. So one of my favorite things is when I'm going to the airport in Little Rock is it says Clinton National Airport on it. And then they've crudely tacked on a sign that says Bill and Hillary on top of it. Just in case, you know, you were wondering who, which Clintons. I figured it was DeWitt or myself. So, <laughs> so <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's wholesome in a way. <laughs> and then I make my monthly pilgrimage to Hot Springs to slum it with those people. Does it say Bill? Is it that informal? Yeah, it's it's uh, the, the the sign on the airport is Bill and Hillary, because you know you had to get hit her on there, and uh, yeah, it's Bill. It's just like my Kentucky Colonel C is is actually not under it's it's under Governor Andy. You couldn't even be bothered to put Andrew on there. What is wrong with these governors? Yeah, the listeners are unaware that uh, that I that yeah, I'm a legal that, I am a legal Colonel. Correct. Yeah, you're. This is Colonel Grills on the mic. Yeah, so. we should really start styling it that way. You know, we're all about <laughs> we're all about manners here. <laughs> that's, that's right, because no one else is anymore. So. Yeah, it's a sad, sad state of affairs, especially in the Lutheran world. You know, maybe Jordan yeah. Cooper's right in this point. Maybe we do need an etiquette qu- class. I'm not saying Emily Post by any means, but you know. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it's also unfortunate because when manners don't exist, you also don't even know who you know. Some Southern guy will have like a fantastic name, like Raymond Thomas Fletcher the Fourth. But he'll be a football coach, so he'll be called Tommy Fletcher by everyone in his state. Right. And that's Perpetually sweating through a polo shirt. <laughs> that is both his work and church attire. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. The only option. Right. Well, speaking of people with impeccable manners, uh, we're going to go back to 19th century America and talk about guerrilla warfare now. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the breakdown of manners is something that you can either dismiss as just sort of a, a, a hobby horse, a something that crotchety people get upset about, or you can use it diagnostically and something that definitely breaks down. And there's a great book about this breakdown in Congress called Field of Blood, but you can see this in the way that people talk about each other as well as how they talk to each other. Although it's more in the about than in the two, because in the two, there are are such rigid codes that when, as we talked about last time, Jeb Stewart is arresting in the name of Robert E. Lee and the United States government, John Brown in Harper's Ferry, 
it is a relatively polite exchange until the moment where the u.s marines bum rush <laughs> the, <laughs> the firehouse <laughs> right until that point it's it's really quite polite because politeness was just expected well, i mean i think you can make an easy biblical case that being ill-mannered is sinful yeah it i mean the the concept of and i've never heard a sermon on this you don't hear many sermons on romans 13 at all and when you do they're they're kind of ham-fisted and one-sided generally speaking but the concept of respect to whom respect is due not right. just taxes but respect and obviously that is to some degree culturally conditioned there's a lot less bowing in a western society than in an eastern society but the notion that you are actually rendering respect and that the person's position or you could even say office is the thing to which you are rendering respect not your personal opinion of his grooming or something or of his wardrobe is lost on us i mean it's right. it's yeah so that, um yeah so go yeah, ahead but i yeah but i would say i mean that is the very thing that's breaking that that is the very thing that breaks down perhaps first when a society is now becoming incapable of hanging together right, right. so that when you get these complete losses of manners what you're really getting is a possible prelude to violence because i no longer have to treat this other person in accordance with any set of customs of honor now honor's gone and i think anything is on the table at that point right so we're picking up at bleeding kansas and before we get into a longer discussion on guerrilla warfare in general you know to kind of come up to speed the abolitionists believe that they have a divine mandate from God to eradicate slavery. Missourians believe that there are interlopers coming in and causing all kinds of trouble, especially along the border. And so Bleeding Kansas or Bloody Kansas is going to refer to a violent clash that occurs in the Kansas Territory and somewhat in Missouri uh, between 1854 and 1861. It's going to be something that it's a term that a lot of people know but i don't think they realize just how violent it, it gets you know we can look at recent events in our history blm riots ferguson whatever and see and see violence and see loss of life but we're looking at something that ends with around 200 people killed give or take over a few short years in the Kansas Territory, over ideological concerns, right? I, I you know, I, I don't believe it's a territory dispute. It's ideological. Yeah, and it, and it can't be a territorial dispute. And it, this is going to, you know, this is going to play into the guerrilla warfare thing. Is that certain kinds of warfare or things that precede warfare, random violence, looting, robbery, murder, rape, are predicated on the fact that we just cannot or or have not been able to get away from each other so when you think about warfare you're probably thinking about and this is the case with the standard narrative about the civil war which is you know you kind of ignore the border states like missouri which we're contending are actually a lot more like almost anywhere in america today than wisconsin in 1860 or south carolina in 1860 and if you're Wisconsin or South Carolina, then you're in, you're trying to invade each other, right? So you've got the various times that Lee tries to invade the North, or you've got when Sherman successfully invades the Southeast. But 
when you're dealing with a border situation, part of the reason that the warfare is going to take the configuration that it does is because you cannot and and don't or don't want to whatever get away from each other. So yeah. when you're dealing with violence or with rioting in a city today or whatever, and we'll talk more about contemporary stuff towards the end, especially, you are dealing with a situation where we are not getting away from each other. So the violence is going to take on a certain character. And I think it's a particularly savage character. It It's something that if you're looking for parallels earlier in American history, you're going to find maybe in the way that loyalists and patriots treat each other during the time of the, of the revolution. But the thing that's most like it actually is the way that whites and Indians treat each other mm -hmm. it, is that it's going to be particularly brutal and your analog for bleeding Kansas that's going to happen during civil war times that commonly people don't know is what's called the Dakota War. And the analog here is simply that women and children are going to be at danger in this kind of warfare in a way that they're not when you have constituted armies fighting each other on fields of battle. Correct. And yeah, so that's why defining guerrilla warfare is is tricky because to one person it's going to mean child soldiers and you know things like that. Yeah. To other people it's going to mean IEDs or or some kind of patriot sniping at officers during the revolution or something right. like that. Right. And and it can include all of that. It's related to so-called asymmetrical warfare at times where and, and in the case of the American Revolution, even though we're being anachronistic here, guerrilla warfare could sort of apply as asymmetrical. But asymmetrical refers to the disparity in numbers between and resources between the forces. Right. Guerrilla warfare, however, gets its name from the Peninsula War, the Iberian Peninsula, Spain and Portugal versus France, and the unconventional tactics that they take. So actually kind of tying into the manners conversation guerrilla <laughs> warriors yeah. don't don't play by the rules right so you have ambush you have sabotage you have sharpshooting at time at a time when it wasn't really a respected kind of thing or at least an, an expected kind of thing but the germans invented rifling so now we can do that and so it, it is sometimes tied with terrorism but that's more you you really have to I mean, what does that word mean? It really depends on your perspective of an individual conflict. Yeah, you could say, you could say ad hoc warfare. Yeah, and I think I think one big distinction is that a terrorist is usually relying, and this is probably easiest to see in the 20th century, like you think of the IRA or lots of other similar movements in, <laughs> I was going to say other third world countries. Uh, <laughs> anyway, we'll talk about Ireland some other time. A terrorist is usually relying on creating a certain feeling among the civilian population of his opponent. A guerrilla warrior is not necessarily doing that. So there is guerrilla warfare that does not involve the taking of civilian life or the abolition of a distinction between soldiers and civilians that is characteristic of certainly Western warfare. So guerrilla warfare can be practiced, I think, in a way that is, that is moral. Whereas terrorism, which relies most heavily on the taking of civilian life, but is also relying on certain political dynamics, including that it matters, for example, in a modern democracy, how the people feel about life. 
Right. Um, I mean, we yeah. have borderline guerrilla warfare in the scriptures. We have sabotage. We have Rahab. We have right. we have things that we have spies. Lead, we have spies. I mean, it, it's all yeah. there. I mean, there's there's trickery, and it's seen as moral. It's lauded when the good guys do it, and so what's happening then in bleeding Kansas is it is guerrilla warfare. It's not conventional warfare, especially as it's understood at the time. It's not really standing armies and it's debatable whether you can call certain groups, even militias or not. Yeah. Right. And, and I think it, it gets closer to terrorism in the sense that, and that, and, and certainly Brown is trying to engage in terrorism, not necessarily in Kansas, but certainly in Harper's Ferry. In that what he's trying to do is create certain public relations dynamics that rely on media. And that is something different than I'm defending my territory, but I'm doing it in this particular way because I don't have the forces or the skills or the resources or whatever to do it in some kind of open conflict, whatever that looks like at that particular point in history. So I think there is a distinction. It's a distinction. It's not a bright line because guerrilla warfare obviously slides as we're going to talk about today very easily into <laughs> sheer terrorism looting and murder um, right especially when the civilian population becomes the target of that guerrilla warfare yeah absolutely well let's get into bleeding kansas a little bit more yeah and on, and on to quantrill's quantrill's raiders and things like that so yeah so what's going to happen when missouri attempts to secede is that and we talked about camp jackson and talking about the germans because of the germans predominance in those union forces that nathaniel lyon is going to use to suppress the missouri state guard in and around the st louis area that doesn't prevent there from being confederate forces both constituted in missouri as well as coming into missouri largely from arkansas and in civil war terms this is all the trans mississippi theater so this is the western theater confusingly is not very far west in the civil war but america is not very far west people speak mm -hmm. people wise so wow. this trans mississippi theater is going to have several battles in missouri at the very beginning of the civil war in 1861 and then again when general sterling price is going to try to come back into missouri in 1864 and will be unsuccessful so missouri is going to remain more or less under union control throughout the civil war that is going to create a dynamic where confederates can really only succeed su succeed in missouri as irregular or guerrilla forces irregular meaning they might not be wearing uniforms or they might be wearing the other side's uniforms but trickery is the word that you used earlier colonel grills and that's that's the right word so what that's going to create are several forces who are going to fight something like cavalry units and they'll follow some of the same patterns that cavalry do in the other two major theaters of the war eastern and western but what bill quantrill or bloody bill anderson who are quantrill's the most famous commander in this point and he's something like nathan bedford forrest or john mosby and other theaters is that what he's going to do is get together groups of men who have become largely from central and western missouri dissatisfied with the way that the union forces are handling those populations so this is where the demographic difference between who might actually be in a union army 
uniform in Missouri and who actually lives in Missouri is very important. If you feel that you are being occupied by a Union Army unit that, for instance, doesn't really speak English, but you speak English and all your relatives speak English, and that's going to be the case for the the James family and associated families in the Liberty, Missouri area. Or if you feel that the people who are coming into your area, you don't you don't own slaves, but they look upon you with suspicion because you have a southern accent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Those demographic differences are going to create recruitment for people like William Quantrill. Because all he has to do is come in and say, We're helping you take we're gonna help you defend your own homestead because the really large dynamic throughout Missouri throughout the Civil War is that much of the population, both in the in the Ozarks and north of that, are gonna be suspect in the eyes of the federal government. And that is not going to enable open Confederate recruitment in large numbers after the spring of 1861, but it will enable lots of clandestine Confederate recruitment thereafter, as well as as well as Union recruitment for similar forces that we'll talk about a little bit later. Right. So you have things like bleeding Kansas going to spill over into the time of the Civil War. Yeah, right. You know, Quantrill's Raiders active until, I don't know, probably officially 1865. Right. Anderson's group, others, you know, they're going to continue on post-Civil War. They're going to be essentially outlaws. You know, you right. know the, some of these guys make up essentially the first, what we would call outlaws in the Western genre. Yeah, and, and I think that looking at it as a continuous period from the early 1850s to if you want to talk about the death of Jesse James as some kind of marker in, I believe that's 82, 81 or 82. I think it's 82. And you just look at what is occurring. So here's a common thing that happens and you don't even have to assign any particular ideology or time period to it. You're one kind of a person, another kind of a person comes into your town and demands money and demands that you hand over certain things from your farm or demands that you evacuate your farm. Well, now that sounds almost even like the Mormon War from decades earlier than Bleeding Kansas. But what I just described could have happened in 1856 or 1866 or 1876. And it really doesn't have anything to do particularly with, do you support slavery or against slavery or what, what does your accent sound like? Because it happens to everybody. Yeah. You know, one of the things that we can't, Forgetting all this are the constitutional arguments pre-Civil War that lead to a lot of this. Just how many political rallies are being held in these territories and how that contributes to a lot of the fervor. I mean, you have yeah. you have politicians and demagogues coming in, giving their speeches, and fuels this directly. Yeah. And that that that's something to just take a specific example with the James brothers is that the James brothers, which is Jesse and and Frank, largely are going to be important here because they're the ones that sign up. They're the two oldest in their family, and they sign up to join Quantrill's outfit relatively early in the Civil War, so not 64 or 65. But they are, they're, they're raised by a, their, their father who 
dies a fair number of years before the Civil War, is a Southern Baptist minister and is one of the founders of William Jewell College, which is still there in Liberty, Missouri. They're, they're not raised with any kind of extremely strong conviction about secession necessarily. What is important are two things, two processes working together. One is this, you could you could say radicalization or mobilization, or if you were a Marxist, you could call it consciousness raising about what they should be thinking and what the right kind of thoughts are about the different things going on around them, whether just to the West in Kansas or in their own state, far to the East in St. Louis or whatever. The other process that goes on is that you might have whatever thoughts or you might be personally apathetic or whatever. I mean, generally people have little concept because they just imagine that history is full of people that love to go to war is that both the North and the South eventually have to engage in conscription. And that, you know, even when you have mass conscription of a very efficient manner in the second world war, plenty of people try to get out of it. So the James brothers don't wake up one day and say, I think I want to endanger my life for the sake of <laughs> you know, Jefferson Davis in a place I've never been to. What happens is that as someone else gets radicalized in a completely opposite direction from you, he comes in and he is going to raid the James homestead. Their mother and their stepfather are harmed in this raid. Buildings are burned and that causes immense resentment and anger that has something but not a whole lot to do with some of the arguments that maybe a preacher in new england thought it had to do with so i think that one reason we're focusing on the border is not just because the arguments are there but because the arguments have real life consequences for people that live in places where there are different kinds of arguments flying around that they don't in a place like a wisconsin or for a long time until Sherman invades South Carolina. Right. So some of this stuff we've covered in the previous episodes, but, and it bleeds, I think, together for a lot of people. So like the sacking of Lawrence and Quantrill's raid get on Lawrence, get mixed up. And, um, and then we've got so much interesting stuff that happens in the bleeding Kansas area. We talked about Osawatomie and Potawatomi, I believe. We didn't talk about the most based incident ever in the U.S. Capitol, the caning of Charles Sumner. But it's it's all it's all related. Yeah, yeah, one of many canings, in fact, too. Little known, little known fact. But Field of Blood is a is a really interesting book um, that I talked about earlier. But yeah, so for example, the sacking of Lawrence versus Quantrill's raid during the Civil War on Lawrence. These are distinct episodes just in time. The people and the targets are not distinct. And right. the targets are going to be, and this is this is fairly common, is that men and boys are targeted. Uh, women and children are left unmolested when and where possible. Men and boys are targeted. So you have, if you want to think of this as different levels, this is a level of open guerrilla warfare but not to the same degree as what we'll talk about in a little bit with order number 11 because what what you're doing here is you're trying to expunge any effective military population from the area 
And right. when, when things are sufficiently desperate, boys, you could think of them as maybe 12 and up, are always conscripted into such units, right? I mean, when Germany gets really desperate at the end of the Second World War, even the future, you know, Benedict, Pope Benedict is going to be conscripted despite his great youth. So what they're trying to do, and I'm not saying this is like wonderful or they're the greatest people that ever lived or something. I'm just saying they they harbor, this is, there's a whole nother level beyond this. They stop at the level of we're only trying to kill people of military bearing. Well, yeah, I mean, cons- consider that one of the reasons Quantrill raids Kansas is because they've imprisoned anti-Jayhawker women. I mean, there are women in prison. Yeah. Yeah, there are women in prison, and the prison catches fire. Yep. And many people's relatives, Quantrills, Andersons, Jameses, are hurt or die in this fire in a jail in, in Jackson County, Missouri. So you're dealing with a situation where, and this, this I mean, I would say this is just absolutely essential for anything that is talked about in history that has to do with justice is that it's going to be the tendency of almost any group to tell you what happened to them and therefore why they did what they did. Right. It will very rarely tell you why what happened to them happened to them. Right. <laughs> so the conflicts continue Yeah. up until 1861. So now the Civil War has started proper. And now we have Jayhawkers versus Bushwhackers. Bushwhackers being an objectively cooler term than Jayhawker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and it, it almost as obscure perhaps I, I don't think it's as obscure in its meaning like it's like oh it it's originally about clearing you know wilderness areas right but it's going to become it's going to turn into this is a southern aligned we could say i don't i don't know if confederates the right word for things this informal here's a, a bushwhacker is a southern aligned gorilla a jayhawker by this time is going to be a northern aligned guerrilla. But civil war proper is proper in the sense of constituted national governments, armies in the field, army of the Potomac, army of Northern Virginia. In this sense, I mean, 1861 isn't significantly different from 1856. Yeah. And it becomes confusing because he'll be Captain Quantrell. Okay. Well, what does that mean? You know, there's, there's several <laughs> examples of this where people receive ranks but seemingly have nobody. I mean, they have people under their command, but there's nothing official. Right. Yeah. And and you're dealing with a situation where the Confederacy is going to recognize these units and will enable recruitment because partly because these guys are on the fringes of everything. So mm-hmm. this is also something to notice is that you're going to get better treatment and greater clarity about what's going on on what you're supposed to be doing and where the money's going to come from and whether you're going to have uniforms or or weapons or anything when and where you are close to the seat of government close to people of power when you are in western missouri or eastern kansas you're far from everything you just don't you just don't matter that much so you're captain but go find some people to be under you yeah so as a result of everything going on in 1863 we're going to get Order number 11. Now, I'm assuming yeah. we're not talking about Grant's order number 11 of similar vintage. <laughs> no. Which is the no. year before. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Yeah, you can you can go look that one up. Kind of a Jonathan Greenblatt type feel to that yeah. order number 11. Yeah, it might, might surprise you there. So, 
Adam, tell us what's going to happen in order number 11 and yeah. supplies. Yeah. So whereas grants number 11 is about settlers who are into, I think in that case, almost entirely Jewish. So it's, it's, it's an expulsion order. This is also an expulsion order, but it applies to a lot more people. Prior to researching these things, I had heard of Grant's order. I had mm-hmm. never heard of this one. Yeah, Ewing's order, right? Yeah, and Ewing, Thomas Ewing Jr. is William Tecumseh Sherman's foster brother and brother-in-law because Sherman marries the girl that he grows up with whose, whose father had taken him in after his own father's death. So Thomas Ewing is has a relatively cushy position. This is not actually thought by the Union to be a very, you know, let's say a restive province. But his concern is that if we keep having civilian populations in a number of counties in Missouri, right on the border with Kansas, we will continue to have a guerrilla warfare problem. So the only way to get rid of a guerrilla warfare problem is to get rid of civilians. So the soldier-civilian distinction is completely broken down at this point. And whereas Grant's order inconveniences maybe dozens of settlers whom Grant believes are ripping off Union soldiers as they're selling supplies to them, this affects thousands of people, men, women, and children. And what they have to do is just to leave. <laughs> right. They, they just cannot live in their homes anymore. And what the, the way that this is going to be enforced, and there's there's a beautiful painting by an early Missouri painter named George Caleb Bingham of this. It's beautiful. I mean, it's horrible, but it's beautiful. Is that they are chased off by guys called redlegs. And that's yep. kind of another name for Jayhawkers. And it's denoted by the the gaiters that they wore that were red at the bottom of their pants. They they weren't dressed really like like regular Union forces. The red legs are going to come in, and if you are still on a farm after a certain point in, you know, Jackson County or Missouri, you are going to be expelled from your own home because if you're still here, you could possibly be somehow feeding Bloody Bill Anderson dinner at some point, and that would be bad. And I can't cast Kansas urbanites versus Missouri rural folk, but this very much was intended to deprive the guerrilla groups of rural help. Right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And and that's that's because you can't really support guerrilla warfare without rural backing. Yeah. If and this is going to be, yeah. you know, this is, you know, once we get toward the end of the episode, we're ending sort of getting close to the end of this series. You know, how do we bring it on home? These are going to be things you have to consider um, when applying the lessons of history to to our time, but we'll get there. We'll get there a little bit later in the episode. Yeah. And I mean, Kansas city is not much of an urban area to speak of at this point, but point being that when they are trying to control populations, moving them into a city, like separating those, you know, supposedly various pro Southern women from their families and putting them in a jail it's much easier to control them. So if you just think of an urban area somewhat like a jail, it's much right. denser. It's much easier to monitor and, even back then. And I do think it's at least fair to say um, that the abolitionists who were coming to settle Kansas 
and the ones who are causing trouble, while not urban, are certainly urbane, at least in their own eyes, compared to some Missouri ruffian. Yet another cultural difference. I mean, most of America is rural, and so when yeah. we talk about rural today, we don't have the mass urbanization yet. We're getting there. The die has been cast. Mass urbanization is coming already by this time in America, Yeah, but we're not there yet. But the ideologies, the attitudes, the worldview, whatever you want to say, that would lead to this mass urbanization are all found here among these groups. Yeah, and if you want something similar to think about, you could consider the draft riots that happened in New York City in 1863. So same year, and this is all the same year as the turning points at Vicksburg and Gettysburg in the conventional war part of the Civil War. But the draft riots in 1863 are enormous and much greater resistance is put up, let's say, per capita, or at least for some some short period of time, by largely Irish immigrants on Manhattan Island. The difference being resistance can go on much longer. It just morphs in its sources and its intensity in Missouri, whereas in New York, the Irish riot against the notion of conscription, they lynch several people, some white, some black, and but they are effectively put down because they are contained. Whereas what happens with General Order Number 11 is that you are burning down farmsteads, you are chasing people off. Obviously, anytime this happens, women are going to be violated, things are going to be stolen. That is the nature of warfare. It's a plague on the earth. I mean, I think Sherman was right about that. It is indeed hell. But when these people disperse, if they are allowed to disperse, they will now reconstitute that much angrier, right. <laughs> that, that much and, more determined. Yeah. And order number 11 isn't exactly popular. You know, it wasn't as if every no. unionist was salivating over this. In fact, I think Bingham was an enemy of Ewing. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> and that's why the painting is not that flattering. No, no, not at all. And what you're dealing with is a situation that is also maybe hard for people to conceive of, but hopefully all this stuff about Missouri and Kansas will help them, is that anywhere you go in the Civil War, you might think you have two sides, but you you have very vaguely two sides within which there are always multiple other sides. So Union generals are going to differ wildly on how you handle escaped slaves or or where they're supposed to go or what they should do. Nathaniel Lyon had, as we mentioned, maybe in the German episode, had tried to issue something like an emancipation proclamation on his own, at least for the state of Missouri. And Lincoln was like, no, nope, you're not going to do that. <laughs> so yeah, you have, I mean, you George Caleb Bingham is not some kind of fire-eating Southerner. He just doesn't think you should evict civilian populations from their own homes. And this will create dynamics that then resound long after formal fighting is done on the Missouri-Kansas border, as it's as it's going to be between constituted armies, certainly, from about 1864 when, when Price's raid fails and the Union is firmly in control of the Missouri River Valley on both sides of that border. Yeah, this is one of the things that uh, the listeners need to really appreciate is 
you know, it's the federal government coming in and forcibly removing people from their homes. <laughs> now you'll get that with the Corps of Engineers in the 20th century yeah, right, in a different right, way. Right. You know, less aggressive, but no less a, a, an overreach. We talk a lot about how big the federal government has gotten, but it's really not as bad as it could be. You're largely left alone. But the question is, will we be? The precedent, the legal precedent for this kind of stuff has already been set. And the difference is post-order number 11, post-border war, post-civil war, the animosity lingers. The national memory is longer. The cultural memory is longer in these days. I'm not convinced we have a long cultural memory anymore. Consider how, like, okay, people still talk about Pearl Harbor in a way that, that they don't talk about 9-11, for example. And we talk, you know, it, it kind of became the old joke, you know, Rudy Giuliani always mentioning 9-11 and we, be, we being obsessed with it, yeah. but nobody cares right. anymore. That's right. Where the legacy of bleeding Kansas on both sides and the legacy of the Civil War, of course, in a much larger degree on both sides, is going to linger well into the 1960s. Yeah, right. I mean, especially in how children are taught about these things. And I think this is a very interesting exercise. If you want to do it, you go back and just, you could maybe do it on YouTube, is find all the old black and white Westerns that somehow involve the story of the Jameses. Mm -hmm. And especially Jesse James. But even Jesse James at the time is that you, you, you have a linkage between the idea of being wronged and of now continuing to seek justice into the 1870s and 1880s. Well, it goes back to the etiquette talk before. It's yeah. honor. It's honor. Right. Spelled yeah. with, a, with a U in there. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. No, no Noah Webster Yankee spellings <laughs> for these folks. Is that what you're going to get is, and th this, this is going to involve a phrase from a guy named E.A. Pollard, the lost cause, but it's it's really the the variety or the complex they're not all the same idea but coming from either the south proper or or southern like places like the missouri side of the missouri kansas border that involve how wrong was done and how wrong can be righted so jesse james for example whose family originates in kentucky in the generation before his birth is going to bounce back and forth between that's another border state while as some time spent in Tennessee and that family is going to is going to be portrayed and will portray itself in the press access that they have because there are sympathetic journalists in western Missouri that they are not necessarily defending you know whatever I don't know Ab something abstract about the constitution that Alexander Stevens would have argued or something in 1861, they're, they're defending their own homesteads, which were violated by this specific federal government, which has won the civil war. And that means that they're not looking at the civil war as a triumphant conclusion, the way that we are generally taught to. And I think it's, it's a conclusion of many sorts, but when you're dealing with history, you're never dealing with, okay, that door is closed now. That's behind us now. That's done now. It's, I mean, the past never actually goes away. It just changes the way that it weighs or that it feels. And if it feels or weighs one way on the Jameses, it feels or weighs another way on the people who were victorious over them. 
in Missouri or, or in Kansas. The legacy of bitterness affects how the various states and regions will be governed Yeah, beyond that. Has it continued to today? And let's just say up until, say, five years ago, because the world's a very different place now. But. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it continues to today in the way that maybe not maybe not in the sense that Southerners are saying the kinds of things in public or in public school that they would have in, say, 1980, let alone 1920, about the Civil War. There is a tone if you read in new books about the civil war that is very much like a certain strain one strain of northern opinion right after the civil war which is they deserved everything they got and they would have deserved more if we had given it to them yeah and that that's very much the tone that's definitely the academic tone so if your kid goes to college and takes a class in the civil war that's very much the tone is that what was done to the south and what happened more should have been done. And that may or may not have reference to general order number 11 or something, but what it has reference to is an overarching sense that justice well, was done and and, I mean, and more should have. I mean, of course, the reason order number 11 gets forgotten is because Sherman's march just overrides it as far as the great, depending on who you are, victory or great atrocity of, of the war. Right. And, yeah. But it's related to that. I mean, it's not displacing, but it's doing the same thing. It's instead of guerrillas doing this, it's now official Union troops raping and pillaging and burning. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's what's going to be called as the Union debates how they're going to prosecute the war, hard war. And there's a giant debate, especially inside the nascent, tiny Union general staff in Washington about how hard this war is going to be. And why you would press hard in various places at various times. Sherman's March gets remembered too, because remember, it's in the Eastern Theater and there are just way more people there. That doesn't mean that it's more important for us today, because it may be that today we are more like Missouri than we are like a monolithic state of either side. With militarization of police, you're much more likely to see something like order number 11 than you are Sherman's March. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Because when you're talking about Sherman's March, just for the listener that isn't, you know, hasn't been studying the civil war since in utero, as I think probably both of us were just (laughs) required to do, it's just part of (laughs) who we are. Yeah. Right. Is Sherman's March is the closest thing that you're going to get in the civil war to what in the 20th century would be called total war, which is the which, for instance, the Allies prosecute very successfully on the Germans in the Second World War, and they try in the first, they're just more successful in it in the second. You are just going to devastate everything and everyone until they surrender. Yeah. And there'll be some listening that say, yeah, that's how you do it. You know, this is a uh, this is why the con was great, right? Right. Uh, right. But but we still have to deal with this. Ethically and as a people, it's one of the things you would like to be a fly on the wall because we're dealing with primary sources. But, you know, to be in a room with Grant and go, hey, you get the news about this. How do you really react? Right. You know, um, now, while my opinion of the Civil War could be surmised, Grant still seems to be a man, although a drunkard for a while, of good character, if not at least a very different character for some other people. And I mostly base that on the reason why he hastily writes his memoirs, but 
that's a story for another day. <laughs> yeah. And this is something that I think I've talked about on the show before regarding nuclear weapons, but this is, this is, I think the question, and it's a question about America coming out of the civil war, whatever you think should have happened or how it should have gone down is the, the way in which war coarsens not only individual people, but a, a people, a nation. And Grant is aware of that. I think that after a certain point, Sherman has more autonomy and Sherman has a different opinion of these things. But remember, he is he is very close to the guy who issued General Order Number 11. And Grant has a somewhat, and you can see this in his conduct, a somewhat different opinion of how things should have gone down. One of his big criticisms of Pemberton at Vicksburg is simply that Pemberton endangered so many civilians so needlessly. But the the question here is what happens to us when we do things like this or they are done to us? They're done to us, that creates bitterness. And I think that's obvious enough. And it's it's very obvious in the case of how the South then reads the Civil War to some degree down to today. And certainly any appeal that the South has as a region is built on the Civil War, right? Without the Civil War, the South has a very different, at least, sense of itself. Um, to see similar examples of this, and to see how it would play out in a more contemporary context, you're going to yeah. have to look at, you can look at World War II, but the world's so different there. You can look at Franco's Spain. Yeah. You can look at the Taliban, the Mujahideen, and things like that. Yeah. For an example of how this is going to play out in a, in a contemporary context. Right. and. As we read history, people are going to ask the inevitable question, you know, what does this mean for us? Are we on the precipice of this? Who can know what will break out? But what does that mean? Yeah. Let's start here by saying that people who are talking about, and I see this on all sides, and I see it in very mainstream publications at this point, national divorce, that seems like the they imported that term from the way that the Czechs and the Slovaks split up after the end of the Warsaw Pact. But I think a little more honestly, it, it quote another civil war or civil war 2.0, that's the, I guess, Silicon Valley version of the idea mm-hmm. is that when someone begins to talk that way, you have to understand, first of all, he probably doesn't know what he's talking about. If he's putting these things in some kind of 2,500 word think piece, mm-hmm. because he is talking about something that when it does occur, and the case that we're making is that demographically, America is much more like Missouri and especially Western Missouri in the ideological, not to speak of other kinds of human variety available today, almost anywhere than it is like Wisconsin or South Carolina in Civil War times, ideologically, not to speak of other varieties. So when you're dealing with that and the guy's like, well, I want this or, or let's, let's make this happen or all of these red state governors can get together. You, you don't really know what you're talking about unless you're going to tell me, well, what are you going to do with Eglin Air Force Base in Florida if Biden and DeSantis can't get along or something? It's, it's simply not serious. And I don't mean by that, that, oh, it's not serious. So you don't have to care. I'm saying it's not serious. And this guy's, you know, deep, deep thinking, conservative, intellectual leadership on it is not something you need to care about because he's not 
taking seriously the human cost of what he's talking about. Right, because it's uh, I keep using this word; it's going to have yeah. no meaning. But it's it's not merely an ideological war. No, uh, it's blood on hands. It's blowing up trains and railroads. Right. It's burning cities. Like that's what. And so you take it into a modern context. So how detrimental was destroying Southern railroads to the Confederacy? It it wipes them out. There's no supplies. Right. Think about how our transportation system works today, our series of roads. We have more roads, which means it's easier to actually block things off, yep. oddly enough, because you can't travel the way they did. In a pinch, you could run a cart over the mountainside in those days. You can't really do that today with the way that our supplies work. Think about it this way. How much more cruel is a modern civil war or situation, national divorce, whatever, uh, going to be with our medical system and the number of people that need prescriptions and other medications to live when you can't get blood and saline, you know, basic things into a hospital? Right. These are all things that people don't really count this cost. You're not going to be able to sit down like it's the model UN and have a debate in some house somewhere. (laughs) there's going to be a a real human toll to this and people don't think about it. Yeah. And model UN is such a good, I don't know how long (laughs) you've been planning that reference, but just the general insufferability of everyone I've ever met. (laughs) Right. And their, their disconnect from life. So what you're looking at when you're looking at national divorce is that you're saying, if you're, if you're being serious about it, here is the amount of human suffering and death. I am willing to go through for goal X or goal Y. And that that is the kind of decision that that Grant and that Sherman and that on the other side, you know, even somebody as low on the totem pole as a Quantrill is is making about what are we gonna put people through, not right. just how yeah. and, and so okay, so you take the Kansans, their goal is to free slaves. Yeah. Okay, you take the Missourians. Their goal is to stop radical incursions into territories, okay? And I'll be as neutral as possible on these positions without judgment. Okay, Lincoln wants to preserve the Union. The Southerners want independence and self-government. What are, what are we arguing for now? A national divorce so that we can have drug testing for welfare in Florida? Is is that, you know, that that's what it comes down to. Yeah. That, that's These are the talking points, like, you know, well, we don't want big government. Well, what do you mean by that? Because you want your social security checks to stop? No, you don't. Oh, you want this person to lose their medical card? You might want that, except you don't really. They're so tied up in the in the social welfare apparatus, all of these things that we just don't consider in this conversation. Yeah. I, you got you got two very big differences and and one is that the relative gravity of the issues perhaps with the exception of transgenderism and its connection to schooling or mm-hmm. or ideology and schooling that that hits people and has mobilized kinds of people that otherwise had no political yeah. opinions or, or or salience and we that, are seeing at least actual results from grassroots yeah. campaigns on that right. and i'm not right. just talking about bud light Right. Yeah. So I, I think that that's one of the few areas where you can see that it both weighs on people in their lives and has actually spurred them. But that still only resembles America maybe in the 1840s. So, yeah. I mean, we'll get to right. in later episodes what America, say in the 90s, did to people who wanted to live a rural life 
and hold extremist opinions. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Because I think what we're dealing with is something more analogous to it's easy to see what's coming and people in the 1840s are predicting the 1860s, but the actual carrying into effect of those things, of those differences, of that hatred is still in the future. Yeah, and, I, are- and I don't think even in the 1830s and 40s, they foresaw just how bloody the Civil War would be. No, no not just and, and we don't either. Did the people who entered World War I believe they were changing the world? No. Yeah, right. I And, and the other factor that I think is very different between that time and ours is that biologically, I thought of this when you reference prescription medication, Biologically, we are dealing not only with a lot more population spread out over the continent in a different way, we're also dealing with a population that is much less capable of physical conflict for any sustained well, period and, of time. And then just, you know, black pill toward the end of the episode here, but think about this. <laughs> we're dependent upon two very important things, electricity and air conditioning and artificial sources of heat. So, and by that, I mean, electric heat, gas, whatever. Yeah. When the electricity goes off, you have mass casualties without firing a single shot within the first week. If something goes down in winter, you have even more casualties because not only are people dying in hospitals who need these things, but people are dying at their homes of just, you know, by just freezing. Right. Things that actually couldn't be done in the 1860s unless you physically went and destroyed the wood stove. Right. And couple that with what you're saying, our increasingly sedentary lifestyle but our chemical dependence and um, unhealthy lifestyles have not prepared us for um the long haul so you gotta learn how to fast guys and and things like that these yeah. are kind of grim outcomes but this is this is what happens within two weeks you have mass casualties without a single shot in the event of a national divorce that gets ugly right yeah and so this is something to consider is that if your county is now going to be evacuated of civilians who are a potential source of support for guerrilla warfare. Where are they going to go? Because they don't know how to start fires or or live outside or or anything like yeah. that. And and this is going to be on a bigger scale than say yeah. Katrina, where they're evacuating people into random locations and having a very hard time doing it. Right. They're bringing migrants or not migrants, but uh, uh, refugees to use their term in with no real places to put them save small towns in pennsylvania and kentucky or something like that so when you have an already settled population that you're trying to move it's even worse it's even more difficult and and it could still happen i mean we have isolated cases of you know in the 20th century of populations being displaced like i said usually it's corps of engineers we're going to flood we're going to build a dam and flood this area but it's it's a hard thing. It's not something you can do. I mean, you you get a little bit of that in a almost a quaint story like Centralia, Pennsylvania. We got to yeah. find a place for these people to live. You see it in Maui right now. What's going to happen to those people? The people of certain incomes who have to leave now. I think that these are kind of good indicators of what could happen. And Maui's a relatively small scale compared to what what it could be. And so, if there's a legacy of bitterness from this. With the current social cycle that we live in and the current modes of communication we have, I think the legacy of bitterness, if it doesn't live as long, will be much more intense for a shorter period of time. 
I think that we have little conception because most of us are operating on an idea of human beings that doesn't take into account what we think of as extreme situations, but which are historically normal, sure. like warfare, like displacement. Um, hunger. Right. Discomfort. So we're operating on a model where your discomfort is that you spent a half hour longer at the DMV than you wanted to, and you're all upset about it. And then we say, well, social media is exacerbating that or whatever, and maybe it is, but what it's really exacerbating is a sort of childish attitude toward life that's going to make actual suffering that much more difficult in addition to the physical or just sheerly medical considerations you could imagine in a case where we had anything like expulsion of a civilian population or total war being somehow engaged by military force. Right. Well, we're coming up on the end of the episode. And so how would we like to conclude on this? Uh, it's very uh, uplifting uh, and positive discussion. <laughs> what's, uh, what's supposed to be positive about the show is that you will have hopefully thought about things before you needed to rather than after you needed to, which is the default setting of the modern American who's going to jump on TikTok to be upset about Maui now long after it happened and long after Obama was celebrating the water guy that wouldn't release the water. <laughs> right. So, I mean, guys, it, it's yeah. kind of simple. Just make sure you have at least a pallet of toilet paper. <laughs> it's not that hard. you know. Yeah. So this is kind of the mental version of prepping, if you will, is that you will have pondered what could generally happen among human beings rather than having to be constantly shocked by the fact that when a bunch of people who didn't like each other anyway got into some sort of extreme state, mayhem ensued. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, all right. I think that's going to do it. Looking forward to the next episodes. We're going to be getting into some uh, very fun and interesting uh, stuff here in the near future. This has been a brief history of power. I am Colonel Willie Grills here with Dr. Adam Kuntz. See you next time.